You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld, and my guest today is Shari Bernhaber. Hi, Shari. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for inviting me here today, Lou. Excellent. We are both great, and we are both involved in uh, an upcoming Rosenfeld Media Conference, Design at Scale, the successor to Enterprise Experience. And Shari is one of the speakers. Conference is virtual. It's coming up June 9th through 11th, 2021. And um, I'm really happy to have you on our program because you're talking about a, a subject you are one of the world's leading experts in, which is accessibility and accessible design. And uh, if you don't know Shari, you will certainly know her book uh, coming out soon with the UX Collective called Giving a Damn About Accessibility. It's going to be published on my birthday, which happens, by the way, to also be Global Accessibility Awareness Day, May 20th. Uh, and, you know, Sherry, I know you, um, you, you've been on many podcasts. You've done a lot of work in this field. You're, you've done great work for Albertsons and VMware and McDonald's, and you've worked with government and education. You know, we're kind of digging maybe a little deeper than the sort of general what is accessibility and why people should care. Uh, I mean, you're talking at the conference um, about accessibility at scale, which is totally in the wheelhouse of what the conference is about, design at scale. And I wanted to probe that a bit. So uh, how do you scale up accessibility? And is it something that comes completely from designers? Do, do you have to have operations people as part of that scaling process? Is it, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it is probably in some respects similar to other aspects of, of scaling up design and of course, probably different than others. It, it is. So uh, my I like to say that getting something accessible is easy, keeping something accessible. So when you're trying to get something accessible, you're largely focused on the technology. You get a bunch of coders in the room and you figure out how to change the code. You test it. Those are, those are technical people as well. And in the end, you, you produce an accessible product. Um, but what happens of that product? Um, you know, it, it's much easier to take an accessible design and implement it in an accessible manner than it is to make it accessible after it's already done. But in order to do that, you really have to distribute certain responsibilities and accountability for accessibility throughout the organization, even down to making sure that you're procuring accessible tools so that you're hiring employees with disabilities so people are talking about accessibility when the accessibility team isn't in the room and you know all the way through uh, the process until the end. Okay, so that's interesting. So you, everyone needs to have some sort of basic level of maybe uh, uh, maybe accessibility literacy, or at least some kind of familiarity. And then it sounds like you know, like everyone has to have a a minimum awareness and how that impacts their roles, whether they're designing or doing something else related to design. And then. But it also sounds like you have like maybe some kind of concentrated expertise and accountability in the hands of, is it some role on the design team or is it some critical roles on, on various teams, including the development team? 
Well, what we've done at VMware is we've established an accessibility champions program. So not only have we increased our hiring of people with disabilities, we're also allowing people who are interested in the topic, no matter where their role is throughout the company, to get, get access to specialized training, specialized support services, so that they can be the go-to people in their department or in their time zones. We're a global company. Um, I don't particularly want to be taking accessibility calls at four o'clock in the morning. So I have somebody in India who can do that for me. Uh, so that, that's the way we happen to have done it there. But not only do you have to scale the organization, you have to think about SaaS. You know, we're drifting away, or maybe because of the pandemic, running away uh, from monolithic product releases, and we're going to SaaS and distributed architecture. And accessibility can only be tested in an automated manner about one-third of the time. About two-thirds of the accessibility standards have to be reviewed manually. Hmm. So the question is, if you're releasing 100 times a week instead of three times a year, how do you make sure that you take a product that you made accessible and have it continue to be accessible? And that goes back to your saying a little earlier about keeping it going and the sustainability aspects of, of accessibility being so hard. So w what are some of the things that you found successful at, at VMware or other large organizations? Well, the Accessibility Champions Program is definitely one thing. Um, we have a, a Disability Employee Resource Group at VMware, which I lead. Um, that's absolutely critical. That's probably the number one thing to do with uh, respect to disability and accessibility. Because if you don't have people talking about disability and especially invisible disabilities openly, then you're not gonna be able to have the conversations that you need to have during the design and the implementation of the product. Okay, so those are two ideas. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the role of the champions though? How do they ensure that in a SaaS environment with constant releases, uh, that accessibility stays grounded in the process, even if manual testing is, is difficult to do in that setting. So before I was uh, in accessibility, I was a software QA manager. And so I bring a lot of those uh, techniques into my accessibility testing, uh, let's just say paradigm. Uh, so for example, we uh, want, you know, the best defect is the one that never gets introduced into the product mm -hmm. in the first place. They call that shift left in technology. You want to get the defect. First of all, you want to prevent the defects. And if you can't prevent them, to try to get them uncovered as early in the process as possible. So we take um, the accessibility tests that we can automate, and we have them integrated into our continuous integration uh, pipeline. So that when somebody goes to check in a container of code, the tests are rerun, and if any new tests fail that were that were passing previously, the check-in is rejected. And so that tells the developer, hey, developer, test 16B over here, that passed last time and it's failing now. Go figure out what you did wrong, fix it, and bring it back. So changing that process so that the check-in actually does get rejected, that seems critical. But that's that's it, it is if you if you want to have an optimal process that that eliminates defects or prevents them from being introduced. Yes. And that's part of your sustainability goal. And that, it absolutely is. But I imagine that's not so easy to get adopted in 
the, well, the first time is the time it gets adopted, but the first time is the time where you're probably having conversations or uh, with you know maybe uh, developers or other people responsible for the the QC of the software. And um, are you finding that that's a, a, a big hump to get over? Uh, are there any special uh, uh, tricks of the trade to get uh, get that adopted? Uh, and, and get the check-in process uh, changed uh, accordingly. I mean, it just seems like that's like one of these things that sounds very technical and very, very processy, but it's really kind of cultural. It is. Uh, developers are definitely very wedded uh, to their tools, as are we all uh, sometimes, I think. Uh, the big issue at VMware hasn't been the individual team so much as it's been that we've done a lot of growth by acquisition. Mm -hmm. And we've uh, acquired 18 companies in the two and a half years that I've worked at VMware. And every single organization comes in with its own approach that they think is the best uh, for how they develop. And so uh, we have kind of an amalgamation of a lot of different organizations and getting them integrated and getting them moved over to the VMware way of doing things uh, can take, you know, a couple of years sometimes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, you're not like, you know, it doesn't sound like the issue is so much like uh, developers saying, wait a minute, you just threw another roadblock into our, our software release path and uh, it's going to cost us a lot of time and ultimately a lot of money. That doesn't sound like the the, the friction. You know, we, we hear that occasionally, um, but in the end, developers want to develop cool new features. And if they're fixing, you know, grungy escalated accessibility bugs that have come in from the customers, that's not going to put them back on the cool new features after the release. Mm -hmm. um, so the way we explain it is, uh, Yes, probably showing my age here. There was a, a Fram oil filter commercial back in the, I want to say late 70s or early 80s with a mechanic uh, and the and the Fram oil filter salesperson saying, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. And it, the idea was that you pay 30 bucks for the oil change and you don't need to replace your engine, right? We're explaining that accessibility is the oil change. And if you don't do the accessibility, you're going to end up having to swap out your engine and it's not going to be on your terms and it's not going to be on your budget. You know, if you had, if there was a jingle to that commercial and you had sung it, I'd probably remember <laughs> you know, I it. I don't think, I don't <laughs> remember any music with it. Oh, that's too bad. I did look it up on YouTube to make sure that I was remembering it correctly and, and it did bring back uh, memories. That's for well, my, sure. My mid fifties brain is full of seventies commercial jingles. I just, there's a whole lobe and it's driving me crazy, but nothing from Fram, but I'm getting us off topic. So, okay. Um, you know, by the way, it, it, you know, it seems like if your big challenge is surviving uh, constant acquisitions and, you know, the whole M&A path, which by the way is, is coming up at design at scale and in some other talks, um, you know, it seems like, Maybe your next step is to bake in uh, uh, looking at the accessibility of the products of the acquisitions before the, the acquisitions happen. You know, make it another uh, thing on the checklist to investigate. Regulatory compliance. You're giving away my secret. Um, oh, but, we didn't. Uh, we didn't have this conversation, Sherry. We just didn't oh, okay. happen. Didn't happen. Okay. No one will hear it. But you know, to, to at an abstract level. Accessibility, security, privacy, analytics, they're all the same. 
Um, they're, they're all, they all cut across horizontally across every layer of the product. Mm-hmm. And so I find uh, that companies that have good security or privacy practices but haven't done accessibility yet, you can take privacy and security and make it kind of a Rosetta Stone that gets you to accessibility because it's, it's the same touch points, it's the same people, um, it's the same, you can automate some of it, but not all of it. It's the same, you're trying to make the end customer happy. Uh, at, at the abstract level, there's a lot of commonality. Amongst do, do you find that it, like, if it's the same in those horizontal regards, is it often the same people uh, who should be accountable for all those things and that they should make, uh, that, that they can uh, almost make the same arguments for them together? Yeah, we, we do that quite frequently. So, you know, it's the product owners, it's the program managers, it's the the people creating the JIRA tickets mm-hmm. that you, you have to get on board with. Okay, you did this for security and privacy. Accessibility is just more of the same, but pointing to a different set of regulations. Got it. Uh, I want people to do it because it's the right thing to do. Uh, But when that doesn't work, then then I fall back on this is regulatory compliance and it's going to cost us if we don't do it. The engine's going to melt down. You're going to have to replace your engine. Got it. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Uh, You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. Uh, Really enjoying this conversation with Sherry Bernhaber. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about our next conference for a moment. It's called Design at Scale. It takes place virtually June 9th through 11th. This is a conference that used to be called Enterprise UX, and then it was called Enterprise Experience, and now it's Design at Scale. We're using that framing because we think it's actually a bit more flexible and welcoming than Enterprise. And let's face it, everyone is dealing with scale problems, uh, not just in large enterprises like the IBMs and the uh, Facebooks of the world, but people in places that you wouldn't think of as enterprises are really dealing with these challenges of scale. What what do I mean by design at scale? Well, in many cases, it's uh, the fact that you can't get all the various people around the table any longer that are involved in the design process. Those may be sponsors and funders, they may be designers and researchers, they may be developers, they may be external agencies and partners. Either way, the process is so fragmented and so many people are involved. We've got some problems and some challenges that are hard to to deal with. And then the users. Well, the users may not be the customers. You may have uh, people using a a system on behalf of customers. All these challenges of complexity and distribution are all wrapped up in the broader issue of scale. I've been working with a great curation team, uh, Lada Gorlenko, Uday Gajandar, Kid Unger, and we've found some fantastic speakers, both uh, through our call for proposals. We've got uh, something like 160 uh, proposals to choose from. We've already started to, uh, to flesh in the program. We've got speakers that you've heard of, like Peter Merholtz, Kenneth Bowles, Sherry Byrne-Haber, Cornelius Rakiru, Billy Mandel, Surya Vanka, and lots of folks that you probably haven't heard of, but we're really good at finding the best stories uh, from people that you might not know and getting them in a place where they can give a fantastic presentation uh, because we put them to work really prepping and iterating and collaborating as they develop their talks over many months. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, uh, I hope you'll join us. Design at Scale takes place once again virtually June 9th through 11th. You can learn more about it at 
design at scaleconf.com. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review with my guest, Sherry Byrne Haber. Uh, we're talking about uh, scaling accessibility, which is totally in the wheelhouse of our upcoming uh, Design at Scale conference, where Sherry's speaking, June 9th through 11th, and it will be virtual, uh, like everything good these days. Um, so one of the things that's interesting to me from your talk description, accessibility at scale, is um, you talk about shifting our focus uh, from an accessible product to an accessible experience. Uh, what do you mean by that? So I think everybody has at least one instance, and most of us have many, where they can say, you know, I got this great product, I got it at a good price, but I'm never going back to that store again. Uh, so for my husband, it would be the now defunct Fry's Electronics uh, where he always ended up getting what he needed, and he usually ended up getting it at a good price, but he hated the store. He absolutely dreaded going there because the salespeople were so bad and the parking lot was terrible. And what you have to understand is that people with disabilities need it all to be accessible, not just the product. So they need the sites where they do pro you know, product comparisons to be accessible. They need the training to be accessible. They need the support to be accessible. They need the surveys to be accessible. You know, nobody wants to wake up in the morning to a headline that says fill in the blank company isn't interested in input from blind customers, you know, which is what would happen mm -hmm. if a blind customer called you out on an inaccessible survey potentially. So um, I do talk a lot of, about that, and that's why I feel that everybody has a role to play in accessibility. It's, it's yet another argument in favor of that, um, because by the time you hit all those touch points, you're at you know, a good probably 75, 80% of most organizations. And uh, so you might as well just make the whole organization accessible, which is gonna make it easier for you to hire people with disabilities, which I mentioned is a, a core aspect of making sure that the accessibility engine keeps turning when the mm -hmm. accessibility professionals aren't in the room. So uh, besides hiring, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about in a moment, but that, that remit is pretty broad and can be an intimidating you know, scope. Let's make the whole uh, or, organization accessible. Uh, what's a, a, a decent starting point? So my first starting point recommendation is always to start with the Disability Employee Resource Group. Uh, they are just employee resource groups in general are key to getting feedback from your existing employees about what's going right with respect to their particular at aspect of their identity that they feel is an underrepresented minority or that they're an ally of an underrepresented mi minority and maybe what you can be doing better. So VMware did not have a disability employee resource group when I started. Um, and I insisted as part of the, um, hiring process that I was would be given uh, the ability to start a group, uh, which, which I now run today. And we've gone from having nothing to regularly getting, you know, 800 employees uh, at our at our meetings globally uh, per month. And so what are some of the initiatives that have come out of that? Oh, my goodness, so many. Uh, we now do closed captioning uh, at all of our meetings. 
Uh, we have a, an accessible corporate PowerPoint template that we're uh, going to be rolling out in the next couple of weeks, which means the colors are accessible, the layout's accessible, um, people are required to caption uh, social media videos. We've done a neurodiversity hiring initiative. Uh, we now have somebody in the Asia Pacific uh, region who is dedicated to recruiting employees with disabilities. Uh, so we've gone from nothing, uh, and that I probably only touched on about a third of them, of our initiatives. Uh, we've done events on um, parents with children with disabilities, how to deal with the school systems. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing a psychological safety event next month, uh, dyslexia, colorblindness, uh, just all, all kinds of different events, both to raise awareness about the disabilities themselves, but also to empower people to uh, understand how it is that uh, you need to accommodate uh, people with these issues. So when you launched that, was there any difficulty getting people who were disabled or allies thereof to, to get involved? Was it like, you know, did some, was it like someone had to go first and then other people would join or was there any, any hesitance at all? I would say that's probably how it went. Our early meetings probably had maybe 80 to 100 people. Um, invisible disabilities are 70% of disabilities. 70% mm. of people with disabilities can pass as non-disabled, some more successfully than others, depending on how impactful the disability is on their behavior. Um, so there, there's 30% of us, and, and those were some of the people who started the group where, you know, we can't hide. You see my wheelchair, you know I have a disability. Uh, my my co-founder uh, had a voice uh, issue. Uh, she couldn't uh, speak at a uh, normal volume. So uh, we, we kind of got out there, and then we made sure that everybody understood that it was a comfortable place. You know, it was, if you build it, they can come. It was the field of disability dreams, hmm. I think certain extent um we went from you know like i said 80 to 100 at some of our early meetings to you know our largest meeting so far has been close to a thousand was there any kind of a, a senior or executive level support that you needed or um that was just happened to be helpful for you yeah so at vmware we have something uh called the pod 2.0 structure so we call our ergs pods which mm -hmm. stands for of difference and our first executive sponsor uh, was a, a senior VP in uh, customer service uh, and, or professional services, sorry. And then when he left, the chief operating officer became our, uh, our executive sponsor because he was personally very vested uh, in accessibility because we were focusing on so many of his products. And currently we have a, a U.S. sponsor and a, and a global sponsor uh, so that we make sure that we're looking at uh, disability also through a cultural lens. So, you know, you are, you're in a setting at, at VMware where there are already, you know, it's a large organization, obviously, there are already many uh, people uh, on the teams that uh, were disabled in one way or another. Um, what about in settings where uh, there just aren't many designers or researchers or product managers uh, or other people involved in design that are, are, are disabled? What do you do in terms of recruiting? And I imagine it's pretty important. It's one thing to have allies. It's another thing to have people who actually have disabilities involved in product design and development. 
Yeah, I always tell people that, you know, I know how to use six different screen readers. Uh, screen readers are tools that people who are blind use to understand what's going on in software, but I don't use them the way a blind person does. So it is important to have people with authentic disabilities to be participating in the process. We have gone from a self-identification rate of 1.7% when I started two years ago to 3.2% today um, at a time where VMware added uh, 13,000 employees. So not only did we grow by 50%, we doubled the, the identification rate of that larger number, um, partly because we did targeted hiring uh, for candidates with disabilities, and partly because uh, people felt more comfortable actually identifying with one of those invisible disabilities. Fantastic work overall. I mean, it's just impressive and, you know, um, you almost make it sound easy. I know it wasn't easy, but you really- It definitely wasn't easy, but it's, uh, it's, it's for a good cause. You know, I grew up in Silicon Valley after my family moved here from Canada uh, so that I could have uh, reconstructive surgery that really wasn't available in Canada. And I feel that I was very fortunate uh, that, that my parents moved here, that my parents you know, always expected that I would go to college, that there happened to be an accessible college, you know, not too far away from home. Um, and I feel like everybody needs to have those opportunities. You know, the unemployment rate for people with disabilities, even in the U.S., is pretty atrocious, mm -hmm. um, especially after the pandemic. So uh, when we make tools that are accessible for people with disabilities to use, people with disabilities can get hired into those jobs. And it has a compounding effect in a, in a wonderful way, I'm sure. You know, Sherry, uh, before we wrap, we have a little tradition on the Rosenfeld Review. I like to ask if there is someone or something, uh, a person, a book, uh, an article, a community that you want to call attention to for our listeners. Sure. So the two people that I always drop everything and read uh, when when I see in my uh, inbox that they've got a new blog out, uh, one is Haben Gurma, who was the first deafblind graduate of Harvard Law School and is a significant advocate for people with disabilities. And the other is Lily Zhang. Um, I love how Lily um, integrates uh, disability uh, almost seamlessly into her recommendations for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Um, we don't want to be in a situation where we're helping one group of underrepresented minorities at the expense of another. I, I take a fully integrated approach to DEI, and I always feel like disability needs to be part of that. And both of those individuals uh, have uh, outstanding books available. And uh, congrats on your forthcoming book. And uh, thank you. You know, speaking of uh, uh, whenever uh, someone blogs, I, I know you have a popular blog, right? Uh, this week in accessibility. I do. So um, I was fortunate enough to win the uh, Medium uh, UX Collective Author of the Year last year. And that's who I'm working with now uh, to, to get the uh, book out on Global Accessibility Awareness Day. It should be downloadable from their site. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. And then we'll look forward to uh, having you speak at Design at Scale in June. Sherry Bernhaber, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. 
I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com. <laughs>